welcome to the Better Being Podcast with Greg Stark and Ali Orr. This is a podcast that dives into the four pillars of performance, movement, mindset, nutrition, and mental health. We speak with experts, find real-life case studies and helpful anecdotes, and we do our best to learn more about optimizing human performance. Welcome to the very first episode of the Better Being Podcast for 2021. I'm super excited today because Greg and I are chatting with Chris Lamb. Now, Chris Lamb is the Deputy Commissioner of the New South Wales Public Service Commission. Now, I'm not even really sure what that is and what it entails, so I'd love to get into that. But first, Chris, because it's the first episode of 2021, I wanted to ask you, do you have any New Year's resolutions and how's your 2021 looking like so far? Well, uh, great to be here, Ali. I, I have to say I don't have any New Year's resolutions and the reason that I don't is because I try not to wait until the 1st of January to make a change that I want to make. Um, if I decide to do something in October, there's no point waiting two months. I just decide to do it and then I try and start. So I think a lot of the research on New Year's resolutions is um, is not that great. So um, yeah, I just try and take action whenever I decide to, to work on something. That's awesome. I mean... Now's a better time than any, right? Absolutely. All right. And um, I know that your new role as Deputy Commissioner is pretty new. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that and what your job sort of is and the role you're doing? Sure. Well, let me start with a little bit about what the role is. Um, So the New South Wales Public Service Commission is an agency that in many ways kind of oversees the whole New South Wales um, public sector. And there's 413,000 people who work for uh, the New South Wales government in some way, shape or form. So having a level of oversight on many aspects of their employment is is really what uh, what we do at the the PSC, and that can include things like you know, policies around, for example, parental leave or um, running the graduate program or, or anything that applies reasonably consistently across the whole sector. Now, the way I get into that, uh, I've had a, a long career in human resources, all in the private sector before this role. And I was really looking for, uh, well, firstly, an exciting role, but but I guess the opportunity to contribute in a way that perhaps is different than I'd been able to do in the private sector. And I think the chance to do the type of work that I do in an organisation that employs 10% of the whole New South Wales workforce is wow. it's pretty impactful. So that was kind of how I got in there and, and what I'm excited about in the role. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a little bit daunting when you talk about more than 400,000 people sort of in your scope. I mean, how do you even grasp that and where do you even begin to sort of implement programs and how does that work? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Firstly, I don't try and uh, get to know everyone personally. That would be uh, <laughs> that would be a bit tough. But but I think the opportunity is to look for things that are consistent across the sector and things that are consistent needs, consistent challenges, uh, that type of thing. So, for example, one of the things that 
my team looked at last year was obviously how we were responding to COVID from a, a work environment point of view. Now, every part of New South Wales government had a different role to play. If you're in service New South Wales, then you're you know dealing with um, uh, issues around customer service or around uh, you know the, the QR codes and check-ins. Obviously, if you're in health, then you're dealing with you know, frontline issues of providing medical care, etc. But um, some of the things that were consistent were what do we need to do for our employees and what, what does the work environment need to look like? And for office-based workers, what are the guidelines we're going to set around uh, you know, when people should be in the office, when, sh- when they should work from home, when they should start to come back? So really looking for those things that are consistent across the sector is is what we try and focus on. And probably an example of that going forward is how do we move talent um, more readily across the sector and create not just strong agencies, but a, a, a much stronger New South Wales public service because you know, people can have great careers in, in education or in health or, or in planning, but how do we get more people to move across government and give them a broader career experience and help them do a better job for the people of New South Wales because they're taking on a whole of government perspective and applying that to the jobs that they have. Well, I mean, also, I mean, you you touched on it just then as well with making everyone a change of environment of workforce. How, How was that for you? Were you prepared for that? Look, I don't think anyone was prepared for, for COVID. Um, <laughs> most most businesses and government is no exception. We had contingency plans and, and disaster recovery plans for, for things. We, in fact, um, you know, did have a series of, of plans that could be applied to pandemics. I don't think that anyone was necessarily expecting to to use them. And obviously, the health sector were, were you know, quite well prepared for large-scale issues like um we've been we've been dealing with but i think most of us had to had to react to what we saw in front of us and and make decisions and if you're doing those from a from a a principles perspective then whilst the issues are big and complex often the the answers present themselves reasonably obviously for example if, if you've got employee well-being front of mind then obviously you're going to make decisions that are that are about providing people safe places to work. You're not going to be forcing people back to work when they're feeling a level of anxiety about getting on public transport, for example. So thinking about the principles that apply probably helped us to make some of those tougher decisions. And do you think it's fundamentally changed the, the way people are going to work? And, and yeah, what do you see as the really positive changes off the back of this? Well, I think by far the most positive thing is that we have completely exploded the myth that there are a huge number of jobs that just can't be done remotely. Uh, I think we've you know, we've massively reduced the the stigma around working flexibly, working from home, and people will benefit from that for uh, many many years to come. So, so that's excellent. I think the the question about whether this is disrupted the way we work forever is, is an interesting one. I think some aspects, probably yes. I think a lot of organisations now will be much more comfortable uh, embracing you know, their employees working from home for uh, a couple of days a week. Whether or not we 
completely adopt a hybrid model and have groups of people who never come into an office again or or fundamentally change what they do, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think a lot of people come to work for reasons that go well beyond the, the content of the work and they're about creating connection with people, the opportunity to collaborate, the chance to be part of a, of a team and a culture. And those things are harder to replicate when people are working remotely. So, so I, th- I think some kind of hybrid will potentially um, persist from this. I don't know if it'll ever be the extreme that many people experienced during the crisis. And of course, we can't forget that there are many roles out there and many types of jobs where people cannot work from home and and people kept fronting up all the way through the you know the worst of the crisis um, frontline workers um, support workers emergency service workers corrective services workers those types of people that they had no choice that that work is done in a physical environment and for the foreseeable future at least will continue to be um, but I think I think it's certainly provided us an opportunity to look differently about how we work in the future and probably has taken a big step away from the one-size-fits-all approach, which will be a good thing. Yeah, that's, I mean, you deal with such a diverse workforce and, and obviously you've got considerations for how we're best serving the community as well as how we're best serving our, our workforce. And I know when, when COVID first hit, um, there was a lot of talk around mental health and, and concerns for for people's mental health when you go into lockdown and you have working from home and kids at home with people as they're trying to work. Uh, firstly, have you seen much of a, an impact of this? Are we still yet to, to feel that, that big hit? And secondly, what sort of things did you put in place to, to promote a, a strong and resilient workforce? Well, I think, I think we've seen a lot of those things start to play out already, but I'm, I'm sure we will continue to see that for a long time to come. Organisations that provide uh, support for people, you know, be it Lifeline or Beyond Blue, those types of organisations we know have seen a significant increase in their call volume during the year. We know that many of those calls came from people who were in forced lockdowns for extended periods. We know that people who were living alone struggled more than than others on average. We know that elderly people struggled more than than other people. So I think that there's no question that we've we've seen a lot of impacts from from lockdown. I guess the the upside in Australia is whilst the lockdowns have been harsher than in many parts of the world, the medical outcomes have been so much better. So the numbers of people that have uh, died of COVID-19 in Australia still haven't hit a 1,000, yet you've got countries around the world that are dealing with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths. And and I think that the fact that our lockdowns have been more severe has obviously provided health benefit, but the the long-term trauma that it's caused people through those isolations, I, I think, will play out for for some time to come. Now, for, for workforces, some of the things that we've put in place, um, obviously, we had people in many parts of government working from home kind of almost overnight. 
the opportunity to ensure that their leaders were connecting with them uh, via whatever means uh, that be, whether it be Zoom or Teams or WebEx or whatever platforms people are using. And the encouragement of leaders to have just informal check-ins with people and, and talk to them about how they were going and what was going on, I think that's been a big benefit. We've certainly heard from a lot of people that they've got to know their colleagues in a way that they necessarily hadn't before because they've been invited into their house uh, electronically. So they've got to know their pets and sometimes their family and you know, what the physical uh, space that they uh, have been working in looks like. So, so I think there have been benefits around building connections across teams and enhancing relationships, but, but I've no doubt that the mental health impacts will uh, play out for some time to come. And have you found it personally uh, working from home? Look, I, I'd answer that in, in two ways. So, so the first is I'm, I'm very lucky um, my my kids are older. Um, you know, they're both finished high school, so you know I don't have didn't have to worry about homeschooling or or, or um, uh, you know, looking after kids minute by minute, hour by hour. I also have a house that has enough space that um, a number of us could be working from home or studying from home simultaneously, and it wasn't wasn't too difficult. So that side of things was was okay for me, and I was. I acknowledge that I'm I'm quite privileged by that. I think the the thing that I noticed at the end of last year was 2020 took a lot more out of me than I realised. Normally, when I have a break over Christmas, I'm pretty active, and, and I you know whether I'm doing things physically or I'm going out and uh, and um, uh, you know doing tourist things or, or whether I'm doing work around the house, I'm pretty active. Whereas the end of last year, I, I kind of crashed. I, I got to Christmas, uh, had a good family celebration and then really didn't do too much between Christmas and New Year and and really didn't do too much for the first week of January. And, and as I reflected on that, I think it was probably harder on me than I'd realised and that I'd acknowledged. And if it was tough on me, then it was it was tough on on many. Um, so that chance to kind of refresh was uh, was something that I I embraced, uh, even though I didn't really see it coming at the end of the year. And so, what what sort of things do you do to refresh yourself? What are, what are your go tos? Well, I've I've got a few things. Uh, certainly for me, I, I like to walk. So I, I I get up reasonably early in the morning and and I go for a long walk and I listen to podcasts. So um, I had a backlog of podcasts that I'd saved up for, for Christmas holidays. So that was something that I still managed to do pretty much every day uh, over the break. Including sweat uh, equity, I hope. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, uh, I like to do yoga. It's something that my wife and I have discovered probably only in the last three or four years. And, and we do that uh, either in a, in a, in a class or, or um, there's, there's a, a couple of apps that we use. So we try to keep that up as, as we get older. Uh, and I, I usually like to do things around the house. I spend a lot of time uh, in the shed um, tinkering with things, um, you know, whether, whether that be you know, motorbikes, which are a bit of a hobby of mine, or, or restoring old tools that I've inherited from my grandfather. And just, just you know, tends to be things that, that keep my, my mind active and my body active as much as I can. 
Yeah, perfect. And I, and I like those things. First thing in the morning, we always talk about trying to just do one thing that, that energizes you and helps you, you know, win the morning, win the day. Um, and it sounds like you've been been doing lots of that. And I guess as a workplace, how, how do you see your role, you know, considering people spend so much time at work and how do, how do you support people in their well-being? I think the first thing is to make it clear to people that I value well-being for myself and for everyone else. And when I am doing things that are for my own well-being, I'm very happy to, to share those and let people know what I'm doing, what I'm what I'm trying, what I'm struggling with. And I think that that creates an environment where people think, okay, well, if if Chris is prioritizing his own well-being then that gives me space to prioritize mine so, so that's that's one thing I do I think that the other thing that, that I like to do is create an environment where people can talk about some of those things that, that are in, important for them in in their own well-being and you know whether that's talking about talking about hobbies talking about uh, activities that they're doing talking about you know some event that they're training for or, or that sort of thing and again, it creates an environment where people think that this is this is okay here, and this is important, and this is valued. And if they see that from leadership, and if they see that being reinforced at all levels, then you know, my hope is that that creates an environment where people can can think to themselves, "I'm being given permission here to focus on this and prioritize on this." Yeah, leading to example and. Um... Yeah, I like that humanizing leadership and um, connecting to the person rather than than the job. And I guess the other thing that we've noticed a lot of with people that we deal with is uh, job titles now are diversity, inclusion, and well being. They they fall under the one the one sort of bracket. Um, how do you see those pieces all working together? Obviously, I mean you're a, you're a diversity champion. Uh, in the workplace, you've won awards for your work in that that space. Um, yeah, how do you how do you see that all coming together? Well, I think they're absolutely uh, interrelated, and look for for a whole lot of reasons. But we know very clearly now through lots of research that there are many many things that impact people's mental health. But one of those things is their sense of um, inclusion or exclusion. And if you're a member of a minority group for whatever reason and you're being uh, discriminated against or excluded from participating in, in things or marginalised in, in a work environment, we know that that is going to impact your mental health. So creating an environment where everyone can be acknowledged and accepted for who they are and the particular skills and experiences and background that they bring to a job or a team or an organization, we know that that inclusive environment is going to improve people's level of um, well-being and ultimately improve their level of mental health. On the flip side, we know that if if employers aren't focusing on those things or are creating an environment that is unsafe or are dealing with issues of diversity that that aren't being um, uh, you know properly um, properly role modelled etc then that will create an environment where people's mental health is damaged and if you're an employer in 2021 given everything that we know about mental health 
and you're creating an environment that is deliberately or uh, implicitly excluding people, then you're damaging people's mental health and you're risking damaging the mental health, not just of those individuals who are excluded, but of everyone else in the organization who sees that behavior and sees what's going on. So they are absolutely fundamentally linked to diversity, inclusion and uh, mental health and employee well-being. Yeah, you can't have complete well-being without everyone included, uh, really. But absolutely. And I guess you're clearly very, very passionate about it. Is that is that driven from you know having two young daughters and, and wanting to create a, a better future for them? What what's your or not? They're young, youngish. They're not as young as they <laughs> they used to be. Look, it's it's been partly influenced by that, but but my. Uh, focus on diversity and inclusion started long before I, I had kids and long before I was I was married. I, I guess th- there's no one thing that I would say. Oh, this was the thing in my life that made me focus on diversity and inclusion. But but a few different experiences uh, when I was at primary school. My best mate through all my years in primary school was uh, an Aboriginal boy, and he was he was not treated well by a lot of people in the school and and. I didn't really understand why at the time, and and that just, I guess, um, you know, raised in my mind uh, uh, an awareness of, of an injustice. And, and at six or seven years old, I couldn't even articulate that. It just didn't seem fair. And then my my grandmother, uh, she, you know, she grew up in the UK and became a, a single parent in the 1950s before immigrating to Australia with with her um, three children. And she was excluded and discriminated against in in many many ways. Being a single parent, um, being a woman in the workplace in the sixties and seventies. So again, I just I heard stories of that growing up, and and it just didn't didn't sit well with me. Um, and then uh, I had uh, you know one close friend in particular in in high school who came out as, as gay just after we finished school and and he was kind of ostracized by a group of of uh, the guys that I'd been to school with and again I just that didn't sit well with me and didn't seem right so when you're young and idealistic and you kind of see these things and and start to to form views on you know what's fair and what's not fair and how you might be able to influence it uh, that's the beginning of the journey and then I guess as you get further along in your career the ability to really shape the way organizations think about these things and to influence and to advocate and, and to drive change just increases. So it's one of those things that I, I guess I've been passionate about probably since I was you know, very young, uh, admittedly not you know, massively able to articulate. And as I've got further along in my career, I've just seen more and more opportunity to drive change. And that's what I like to do. And has there been a, a crowning moment for you where you've gone you know, I've, I've set out to, to change this in the workforce and I've achieved that or is there something down the line that you would like to to say is your legacy or your, your crowning moment? Well, uh, I guess... Um I guess I'm I'm in in my late forties, so you know, hopefully, hopefully, I've got some you know, good achievements uh, still to come. Um, but look, I, I think probably the thing that stands out to me at the moment is the the, the work that I did uh, working for a property and construction company, uh, and I worked there for for many years and turned, um, you know, with the help of many others, you know, turned what was a fairly blokey 
environment. Um, you would perhaps describe a typical construction site as, as um, reasonably homophobic, uh, although that doesn't always turn out to be the case, but but typically you, you could probably describe them as that. And over a period of time, uh, we were able to turn that organisation into um, a consistently ranked top employer for LGBTQI plus employees in Australia. And that's compared to professional services firms, banks, telecommunication companies, etc. And, and I guess what that showed me is if you can take a, a company in the construction and property space, which many people would think is a really hard place to create inclusion and turn it into a great place to work, then that's a that's an achievement that I reflect very positively on. But hopefully, there are many more of those to come. And uh, have you noticed a difference in between you know that private and that the, the public sector uh, in terms of the themes and the attitudes and your ability to create change in those spaces? I think every employer is is different, uh, and, and I'm not sure you could make a general comment to say, you know, it looks like this in government and it looks like this in, in the private sector because there are some awesome private sector employers out there and there are some terrible ones. Um, and, and government, from department to department, you will notice a, a difference in, in terms of experience uh, of um, diversity inclusion. But what I think is is worth saying is that Government, I think, given that we employ more than 400,000 people in New South Wales, we've got a real opportunity to, to be a leader. And in, and in many ways, I think, I think we are doing that. I think we're, we're doing that in terms of the percentage of Aboriginal employees in senior leadership roles. We're doing that in terms of the number of women in senior leadership roles. We're doing that in our efforts to increase the percentage of employees with disability uh, in in New South Wales, we're doing that through having a pride network across New South Wales government. So these aren't things that that nobody in the corporate world is is doing. Clearly, there are lots of private sector employers out there who are doing good work. But I think that government can really hold its own against against some of those good private sector employers as well. Yeah, it's a, it's always very every individual business is as individual as as the person, aren't they? And and their attitudes and themes that come through. Yeah, indeed. And obviously you and I are both mad keen sports fans. Um, what, do you, what do you think in the, in the sporting realms? Um, what, are, what are different codes doing well? I mean, they're, they're always quite easy, easy targets, some of these codes. But um, have you got some examples of, of where you see sporting codes have been really proactive and, and, and leading the way in this space? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a great question because I, I, think, I think there are there are codes who are doing really good work in, in a lot of ways. I think the AFL uh, are often criticised when perhaps they don't respond perfectly to a particular incident, but by and large, I think the AFL do a great job. Uh, I think the, the formation of the AFLW has been excellent. I think the way that they build up the women's game is is brilliant. Uh, I think they've done a lot of work in the Indigenous space, uh, so I think that deserves a, a lot of credit. I think um, I think uh, cricket has done a fantastic job in building the profile of, of the, the women's game. Uh, I was very proud to have been involved in some of the early steps of Cricket New South Wales in doing that and and um, being one of the sponsors behind getting, um, getting the 
women's uh, cricket team paid in in New South Wales, which set the the standard for the rest of Australia. And then I think there's some other smaller sports that are that are doing good work. I, I think water polo does um, does a great job, for example, in in uh, focusing on diversity and inclusion. And and some of the smaller sports perhaps don't get the the kudos sometimes, but um, often have. Uh, you know, just as much um, work to do and, and in many cases, fewer resources to make that happen. And, and I think some of them have done a great job too. Yeah, there is, uh, it's, there's some great examples and I'm, I'm excited to see where women's sport is going. It's, uh, it's a, an exciting, exciting time um, in that realm. Uh, now I'm going to hand over to Ali and she's going to hit you with some hard-hitting questions. In our quick fire round, okay. Don't stress. Don't worry. They're not. They're not that hard hitting. <laughs> um, first question I have for you: um, If you could change someone's mind about something, what would it be? Oh God, that is that is a hard hitting question. Look, for, for me, <laughs> it would be it would be changing people's minds around. Uh, issues of of reconciliation and an Aboriginal voice to Parliament. That's where I would focus. That's a great answer. I think it's a um, a really topical um, thing that we've been talking about recently too. Um, that's great. All right, question number two. What are you excited about right now in relation to diversity and inclusion? I'm excited that the 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 ceiling on flexibility has been has been really smashed and that we'll have a, a different conversation in 2021 and beyond about what flexible working looks like now that we've disproved all the myths about the range of jobs that just couldn't possibly be done from home. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. We've really, you, we really have smashed that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, question number three I have, do you have a book, podcast or resource that you currently reading or something that you always recommend to people? Gosh, I've got I've got so many um, podcasts and, and and books that I that I recommend depending on on people's uh, situations. I, I would say the my, my absolute go to podcast at the moment is um, Freakonomics Radio uh, nice. by Stephen Dubner, and it's been around for a long time now. So there's lots of back catalogue, but they really approach issues that they tackle from. A very thoughtful point of view. They're very focused on what's the research. You know, what does the what does the data say, and and how do we uh, explain a situation? Uh, so that's that's a go to podcast. And and I read a lot of books. And one book that I have just finished that I think is fascinating, perhaps slightly controversial. It's called uh, When America Stopped Being Great, a- and it's an analysis written by a BBC journalist uh, called Nick Bryant, who lived in the UK, he's lived in the US twice, he's also lived in Australia. So he's kind of uniquely placed to write this quite objective analysis of the US and and you know what's been good and what's been bad in their recent history and where perhaps some of the uh, disunity that we now see um, stems from. So I would recommend that book. Great recommendations. Um, next one we have is, is there something you always do maybe a morning routine or something you do when you're traveling that you would recommend to people, maybe a health hack or a tip that you have? Well, I haven't been doing much traveling lately. Uh, so, you know, my, my travel trips have gone by the wayside. Look, um, 
I, I, I do a couple of stretches every morning uh, as I get older. I'm finding them more important, and and there's probably uh, you know two or three stretches that I do literally before I get out of bed, um, and then a couple of stretches that I do when, when I'm brushing my teeth, and you know there to address some tight spots that I particularly have. Um, but I find that just spending a few minutes in the morning really helps me physically for the day and I feel looser and I feel a bit more energetic and I certainly feel more mobile. Awesome. All right, last question. Now, this is the hard one. Everyone struggles on this. Somebody alive that you could have a conversation with, invite them to dinner, they can answer all your questions and why would you invite them? Somebody alive. Look, I am an absolute cricket tragic, so I'm going to go down this path. Uh, I would say I would love to have dinner with Ricky Ponting because, look, he was a great player. But when I listen to that guy in the commentary box, the things that he sees about what is going on in the game are just next level. And and the level of analysis that he is able to roll off without even seemingly thinking about it is brilliant. So uh, I'll pick a, a very sporting answer and, and I'll have dinner with Ricky Ponting. Great answer. Can I can I come as well? <laughs> no worries. I'll get you a seat. <laughs> I was about to say, Greg, did you stitch me up on this one and make him say a cricket person? <laughs> Not at no all. No planning at all. That's just off the top of my head. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for jumping on this podcast with us today. Apart from all the cricket references, I think that was a real hit. <laughs> well, that's good. And and look, I, I just can't go through a whole conversation without sporting references. I'm sorry. I, I use those analogies all the time and I apologize to my team when I use them, but they're so helpful in telling a story sometimes. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Chris. Thank yeah, you, both. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Better Being Podcast. If you want to learn more, follow us on social media at Better Being PT on Instagram and as Better Being on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you heard, drop us a review. And until next time, stay well.